0: The greatest hits of all time are back. This is the all-new WMEX. WMEX Boston.
1: Tonight, we have a very special guest right here in studio. So, Ben, I believe we could take phone calls if necessary, right? And so, we have Joshua Cutler, who represents the 6th District of Plymouth County?
2: That's correct, yes. Yeah, Thanks, okay, Tony. <laughs> I just want to get
1: that straight. But actually, he's here to help us with some bills that we have on statewide level. So, this isn't just for conversation of, uh, of the local things that are going on in his district, it's to cover the entire state because there's a lot of things going on right now. In fact, he's on, uh, I guess he's on hold or whatever for, in case there's a vote in the House, um, yes. he will he will have to leave us for a minute or two and get his vote in. He's never missed a
2: vote. That's right.
1: In how many years?
2: Uh, this is my ninth year, so going into 10 years.
1: Yeah, that, that's very impressive. You know, that's you. called dedication. And are you still an attorney as well?
2: Yes. Yes, I am.
1: Yes. Okay, so you're doing that. Yes. so um tell me the, as you know we 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 have bill h forty eight fourteen that we submitted um, about a year and a half ago. It had a different number then. So can you kind of walk sure. us through what what had like I from what your assistant told me, it went into the um, health and welfare type. Aaron, what ha- what actually happens? Sure. In there?
2: Yeah. Well, uh, first off, thanks, Tony, for for ha- having me on the show. I, I appreciate it. It's great to uh, to be here and to have a chance to to have this conversation. Uh, it's such an important one, and I you know appreciate the the work that you do uh, advocating for for these issues. It really is very impactful and it, and it makes a difference. So thank you, and thanks to all the listeners out there who are, who are tuning in. Uh, so again, my name is Josh Cutler. I'm a state representative for the sixth Plymouth district uh, on the South Shore. Uh, obviously. Um, but um, in terms of the specific question, Tony, so, <laughs> so even, even after my, I've been, I've been in the legislature for five terms, almost 10 years, and uh, sometimes, you know, tracking all the bill numbers and everything can still, can be a head scratcher. There's a occasion. lot of bills. <laughs> there is. There's a lot of bills. Honestly, and, you know, that's one of the reasons why it's important folks like yourself or your listeners to, you know, to, to reach out to your legislator and let them know what's important to you. Because, you know, there's... 5,000 plus bills and, you know, we can't possibly know them all. And so we rely on our constituents and, and, and organizations and, and people we respect to, to, to speak up and to let us know what their priorities are. And so that, you know, those become our priorities. And so I know, you know, I hear from my constituents, you know, about what are the things that they're, you know, passionate about, or maybe things they're unhappy with, you know, whatever the case may be. And that's really important. It helps. I mean, it's, it's, it's an important part of my job to kind of have a, a finger on the pulse of what the residents in my district are concerned about. So uh, same thing applies to bills. When you have 5,000 bills, knowing, you know, that House you know, four, uh, 4814 is yeah. important to Tony Logreca, well, I want to know that. And if there's listeners who feel the same way, you know, I want to know that as well. And I think all of my colleagues, you know, all 159 other state representatives in Massachusetts, uh, whether you're Democrat or Republican, doesn't matter. You know, we all want to hear from our constituents about, Uh, These kinds of things. So um, in the way the process works is, you know, when a bill first gets introduced, it actually uh, I don't want to bore your listeners here with too much uh, legal ease. But I think they
1: they really like to know because I want (laughs) to know.
2: I don't want to tank your ratings because I know you got Well-rated show here. But uh, so when a, a bill is first introduced, it gets what's called a docket number. It doesn't even get a permanent bill number. So that is a, a, a process that the House clerk uses to docket the bill and then formally assign it to the appropriate committee because every bill that gets filed has to get a public hearing before uh, the appropriate legislative committee. And there's you know a number of committees. I happen to chair the Labor and Workforce Development Committee, and we get typically about 250 bills a session, uh, and we have to have a public hearing for each one of those. And so the bill will be referred to our committee. Uh, it gets a it starts off as a House docket number, and then it gets assigned a permanent bill number once it reaches our committee by the by the clerk. And at that point, um, you know, we would schedule a public Is hearing. That
1: the, that the first committee.
2: Correct. Right. Yeah. So there's if you recall your your Saturday morning cartoon, I'm just a bill on Capitol Hill, people. People, some some people remember that cartoon. Not everybody. Maybe <laughs> it it, 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 uh, it I certainly remember it. Um, you know, there's a lot of steps in the process for lawmaking, and you know, it's intentional. I think you know to make sure that we're able to vet uh vet different ideas. But um, so it gets it gets to the first committee, and so that committee will review the bill and and you know and see if it um you know just, you know, see what the, you know, the different aspects of it are, if there's support for it, if there's concerns, if there's opposition to it, you know, do some research. We have committee staff that will look into these things. You know, and some bills are fairly straightforward and fairly easy to do. Other bills, you know, can be quite intricate and complex and involve, you know, issues involving other states or federal issues. So, you know, it can really run the gamut. But the bill will get uh, introduced to a committee and it gets assigned a bill number. And then, that bill number can change. <laughs> because yeah, it did. It did change. in this case because your bill, uh, this bill house uh, forty eight fourteen, an act relative to patient assessment and notification prior to prescribing certain medications. So that bill originally was um, filed by a, a really great respected colleague, representative Carol Fiola, who represents uh, the Fall River area. Uh, right. And she is a good friend, and, and uh, really, uh, and actually a classmate. We actually uh, were elected in the same legislative cycle, so uh, we we refer to that. Oh, it's good. As classmates, it's kind of like your college. You know, uh, your first year in college, you 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 know the people that you came in with, and they you have a, a certain bond. So uh, Representative Fiola is a is a great legislator, and so she filed the bill, and it was referred to the public health committee, uh, and it had a certain bill number. And so the public health committee would review the bill, they'd vet the bill, then there would be a public hearing. You probably had a chance to testify. I did. I, I, assume. I did testify. Okay, yeah. good. And you know, these days, because of COVID, you know, it's a little bit different. Um, this is probably maybe one of the few benefits, I guess, of what happened is that we now have a greater ability to do remote work, uh, and so people can testify remotely, and it makes makes it a lot more convenient for many folks who you know maybe couldn't take a day off of work to come to the state house and wait in line and, and testify on a bill, uh, and now they're able to do that remotely. Uh, And I'll just tell you a quick story as an aside. So I remember um, we had a hearing earlier in the year about a particular bill before the Labor Committee. And I remember we had a lot of people who signed up and we do our bill, our hearings hybrid. So people can come in in person, but they can also testify via um, Zoom or actually we use Microsoft Teams, which is very similar. And um, so a gentleman uh, who was clearly on his lunch break from work, he was a union guy who was, you know, working the job. He had a hard hat on. And he hopped on the Teams uh, on his phone, uh, testified for you know a few minutes, took a few questions, and then went back to work. And I thought, well, this, there's no way this this fellow would ever be able to to take a whole day off of work to come to the state house and testify. And we never would have been able to hear his perspective. And so I think that that's a really a plus side of, you know, what's happened. It's forced us to kind of relook at our processes and, and see if we can expand the way we do things and be more open to, um, to to make sure that we're you know letting all voices be heard. And so that was uh, something that sort of stuck with me that this gentleman you know, he never, he was literally on his lunch break at work.
1: Yeah, it would have cost him a couple hundred dollars. And he could to never, take the yeah, day yeah, he probably
2: off. couldn't have afforded to do it. So, you know, and so we, we all benefited from hearing his perspective on that bill. So, um, in any case, um, you know, that's the process. And we have, the bill has a, a public hearing, as yours did. And usually, you know, you get people who come in and testify in support of it. Occasionally, there are people who might be in opposition to the idea. Um, sometimes um, they're organized, sometimes it's not really organized. It really depends on, on the issue. Um, And then that committee will make a decision and they can uh, give what's called a favorable report. They can give an unfavorable report or they can put it in in what's called a study order, just meaning kind of holding it for for future reference and not really deciding to move forward with it. it.
1: Never comes out.
2: Uh, Generally, it does. Although I I have to say, uh, you know, I, I just had an experience where I had a bill that was put in the study. And it was taken out of study, and it was given a, a, a thumbs up. So it does happen. But you're right. It's it's not the usual course.
1: So uh, I I noticed one thing, two, yes. two things. When I spoke in front of the committee, there were both senators and representatives in the group. So it's, I thought it'd be just one House or the Correct. other. Correct.
2: So we have what's called joint committees. And so that is something that um, we, we have, you know, the House and the Senate host joint committee hearings. And it makes sense because, you know, the idea of having to go up and testify before the House committee and then repeating that same testimony to a Senate committee, you know, that's that's um, doesn't make a ton of sense. So we have joint committee hearings where we work together. And so I have a, um, a, a so I'm the, the House chair of the Labor Committee. We have a Senate chair of the, of the Labor Committee and we work together to schedule our hearings and we, we share staff and resources so that when people come and testify, we both get to hear you know what folks um, what, what's on folks minds. So. And in your case, when you went before the public health committee, you're absolutely correct. It was a joint committee. So you might have had uh, Senate members and House members. And and you might have had, depending on what kind of day it is, like, you know, some days are really busy. I've had days in the past where I had multiple hearings going on almost simultaneously. And you have to kind of, you know, (laughs) jump in one and then quickly go to the other. Uh, I've had ones where I've actually had two laptops going so that I could try to be monitoring two at a time. Um, Thankfully, that's not usually the case. Occasionally it does happen. but um, so you might have had members kind coming and going. Uh, but the nice thing is that all this, the testimony gets kind of recorded, and and, and and the staff gets to distribute it to all the members of the committee. So everyone will kind of see, like, you know, how much testimony came in on each bill, and we you know we do look at that. It, it has a it's an important part of the process.
1: So so now it's com- my bills that come out of the committee, and I noticed right away that they changed a lot of it. They That's added it. things about veterinarians, which was not even a part of. Because, I mean, so people understand that the bill that I'm talking about, age 48, 14, basically is, is if you have a child who's 18 or under and they're being given a prescription for an opioid, the parent has to sit with the doctor and explain, be explained that this is a highly uh, addictive narcotic that could re- could go the wrong way if your child seems to be uh, like in the effect of it, as simple as that, you know. Mm-hmm. And this, this way here, that the, the parents make, in my case, with my son, I'm the one who filled his first prescription. And my son ended up going on a 20-year chase and ended up passing away. And that's why I'm interested in this bill. Because um, if I had known right. what they were giving me at the yeah. time, I would have never filled it. Right. You know, I would have certainly hesitated and done a little research. You know, And unfortunately, they didn't tell me anything. It was like, oh, yeah, here you go. Take three a day for the next 30 days, and you should feel better, you know, kind of thing. And and I think there are a lot of naive people, not intentionally naive, but people out there who have children 14, 15, 16 years old going to be going to get their wisdom teeth out, and they're going mm. to get that script for Vicodin or Percocets. And the parents, they've heard about the opioid epidemic, but they've never been involved in it. You know, they have no idea that their child could be, you know, they're going to be exposed. This is the, the spigot that mm-hmm. puts it all out there, you know. And this is the thing that gets everybody started pretty much. About 85% start this way. And so we're trying to prevent that. And in other states, like in, past, in the past two years, during the COVID time, when the, every state has gone up 20% or even higher, 40% in some cases, the states that have this into effect locally, New Jersey and New Hampshire, they were the only states that had no increase during COVID <clears throat> because they've had this in effect for at least three or four years. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think Massachusetts needs to pass it. Okay, so, so now we're out of the committee. You've changed well, let me a just few things.
2: I really want to applaud you for, for channeling you know, a tragedy in, in a positive way to try to make a change for, for other families. I think that's... You know, incredibly powerful, and, and, and yeah. I'm sure it's not always been easy to do, but I really applaud you for no, doing that.
1: No, I, I just didn't want my son's death to be in vain. You know, so we, we need to do things, and the best thing is to warn other parents who just don't know. And there, there are 20 there are people out there who aren't parents yet, who will become parents. Well, and, and the sadly, same I mean, the,
2: sto- the kind of story that you've talked about, you know, I, you, you, you hear that, you know, someone you just, you know, had a sports injury and, and, and was prescribed... Uh, a narcotic and, um, you know, sadly, you know, fell into a pattern of addiction and, you know, it's, it's been replicated too often. And um, so certainly I think hearing those stories, I can tell you having sat on the other side of the the table, hearing those stories is very powerful. And, you know, oftentimes we have many people come before us and testify and they all want to give us statistics and data, but hearing the stories is what really, you know, resonates with you long-term. And I'm sure your testimony really resonated with the committee members. And in fact, I know it did because they they decided to give your, the bill a, a favorable report, um, so, but th- th- That's those, good. those issues are important. I, I, and I don't know if we have time, but I wanted to quickly tell a, s- a little bit of a story because it, it, it reminds me uh, of that. Because um, we had a, a gentleman, um, this is now going back three or four years, uh, from my district who, who had lost his son in a very sad and tragic way. Um, and, uh, he, his son had been, um, s- very similar kind of sounding story, uh, had uh, fallen into a pattern of addiction and um, had been sectioned. Um, in, in other words, uh, folks who may not be familiar with that process, Section Thirty Five, it was sort of a last, last, you know, gasp, I guess, last um, uh, chance. And so um, he had had his son sectioned, and um, he thought he was going to be getting treatment. was 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 in a facility, and he was released from that facility without the parents being notified. And sadly, you know, he relapsed almost immediately and OD'd. And um, so this parent was, you know, was 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 very upset, obviously, and, and wanted to change the system because he was concerned that, you know, the parent sh- should be notified in some fashion because, you know, had he been notified, he could have met his son at the, you know, at the facility, had a, you know, a hug and a, you know, and, and a absolutely, you know, a cup of coffee for him, brought him home, you know, that transition period from the sort of outside to the outside world, we know that that is like the, you know, the most precarious time for someone who's been facing addiction where, you know, they're in, in a facility getting treatment and then they leave and those, you know, X number of hours in between are so critical. And so, you know, if we can somehow have a system where, you know, someone's loved ones are notified that they're leaving, well, then, you know, they can be there, they can, you know, they can try to help with the transition. We know how important that can be to try to have better outcomes. And so we worked with this gentleman, um, and we we're able to. We were, and we and we got our district attorney involved. You know, it became a, a big issue. It was reported in the media and so forth. And we were able to change the law and get uh, provision to to ensure um, we. You know, we and it got complicated, Tony, because we have something called HIPAA. And, and, I know. and uh, you well, why, uh,
1: my question is, why is why is HIPAA even involved in in this? Because this is Section Thirty Five. This is not a a medical treatment center. This is a lockup that is there to protect the person because they're endangering themselves. So where, where, where do we cross These are the all line? The argu- <laughs> These are the arguments I, I don't I don't believe, because again, in my situation, yeah. I did have my son was at Gosnell down in Falmouth, uh-huh. and and he was having in a treatment center, and he walked out. And when I called to say, you know, can, I tell, can you tell me how he's doing, and they wouldn't tell me anything. Yeah. I paid $10,000 to put him there. Right. And they couldn't even tell me that he was there. And then when he left, he left with a woman he met there, and they got into a car accident. And the first thing I heard was that they were many medevacking him to Boston, and I didn't hear that from a police officer. I heard it from the girl who was the driver, mm-hmm. who didn't even know me, and I didn't know her. You know, And I still couldn't find out which hospital they sent him to, because of HIPAA. I said, this is like, this is. I know why you do it, to protect the... The, yeah. the case the other side but now i think the thing has gone a little too far the wrong way
2: yeah that sounds incredibly frustrating and heartbreaking yeah. i had to
1: call each hospital and then i just said oh i heard my son was on his way there could you tell me what his condition is i just made the assumption to every hospital that he was there and he was at boston medical mm-hmm. so i didn't have to call too many but it, the whole idea of it was crazy
2: yeah i know i i i i i'm shaking my head because it's just it's incredibly frustrating uh, um and and, and, and it sounds somewhat similar to what we were working with with with, with this my constituent. and we you know we, it, we had to overcome that. that's it's a good lesson though, I guess. We had to sort of overcome that legal hurdle with the federal you know HIPAA law to to make that change. and we did and we, we what we ended up doing is there was a, a checkoff form on the admission box when you get admitted that the individual would would, would, would you know give notice that they were okay with um, that data being shared with. Uh, a parent uh, or loved one when they left. So, you know, there's ways around these things. It is it, it is a challenge, no doubt about it. And um, those laws that are, to, you know, there to protect us can also cause unintended consequences. And yeah, so I think that's, as lawmakers, the, what we need to be cognizant yeah, of.
1: It should be easy to just say, yep, you know, yeah. he's going to be released at this time. Come get him, whatever. Because we had a... I've also been a bereavement facilitator at Hope Floats in Kingston. Yes. And... And... This one woman that was, we were there, her daughter was sectioned at Framingham State, or Framingham Prison, whatever they call it. Um, do you have to
2: vote? No, 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 go Okay.
1: Ahead. <laughs> I know we're on call, so I don't want you to miss any votes. No, no, no. Okay, because someday you might be higher up than a state rep, you know.
2: I like my I like my current job, but... The, okay. So, well, no, I, you're
1: absolutely but Sarah, right. You're, 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 but she got a phone call. Yeah. She, when she did get the phone call was that they found her daughter dead in downtown Boston. When she thought she was safe in at Framingham, you know, and it's like, you know, what is, you know, you can call them when they are deceased, but you can't call and tell them when they're coming out. I'm not mad at you, by the way. I'm just discussing. No, no, no. I just think that we go we go too far to the wrong way sometimes. Um, But let's go back to my bill for a second.
2: Yeah, no. So anyway, I wanted to just kind of tell that story because that was a story, you know, similar genesis. But you know, we were able to make a change in the law. To address the situation now, it's not perfect, but it, you know, it certainly we made progress. And that was this 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 dad took the a, a tragedy and channeled it in a productive way, and that's why I, I'm so you know appreciative of your efforts because it sounds very similar, you know, to what he was doing. Uh, but anyway, back to your bill. So uh, we were talking about bill numbers and docket numbers and, and boring <laughs> yeah. things like that. Um, we just call it the Right to Know Act. Yeah. They well, so you know, but you're right. I mean, the Right to Know Act. Giving a bill like a, a name that people can remember is actually you know a helpful process. I think um, because there are so many bills and and we've you know we've done that. I have legislation I've done on you know different topics. Um, did a, uh, an environmental bill on um, that we call the Energy Save Act. You know we came up with a, a nice acronym because it was a lot. You know, yeah, <laughs> marketing well, we, matters,
1: right? Right. Well, uh, we actually we I'm part of a group called Fed Up. Okay. And we actually filed this a bill in the U.S. Congress. Yep and uh, Ron Portman and Joe Manchin are the two
2: okay.
1: co-authors on it and and we call right the no act and it's ironic we get it through the we're getting it through the senate we can't get it through the house
2: and the Massachusetts I mean the, the US house yeah Oh, so okay.
1: we're trying to make it law in 50 states you know okay so that's oh, that's the other thing but where that's Quite and and an, an aggravating, and you know. Uh, but we're we're making it. we're making progress. Oh, good. Making well, progress, and we I'm have a to. lot of, con- uh, you know, U.S. Congress, Congress- people that are yeah. supporting it. I mean, who would not support it? It saves lives. Unless you get your pockets full of uh, pharmaceutical money, there's no way that you shouldn't support that bill. You know. Absolutely. Um. So, um. So now we're out of this the the first committee, and we're into. Appropriations, correct.
2: So, so you're in the healthcare financing, which is um, basically the appropriation. So we, we have a, what's called the Ways and Means Committee, which uh, oversees anything with a fiscal impact. Um, things that are in the healthcare arena that have a fiscal impact are instead referred to the Healthcare Financing Committee. So it's sort of it's very similar to to, to that. Um, it's basically the, the the ways and means of healthcare related legislation. So they review those things, and um, so that's where the bill is now, and that's why it was. That's what you asked about. You know, we're talking about the bill number change because some tweaks were made to the bill um, when it left the committee, uh, and it was given a bill a new bill number. Because anytime the bill changes, it gets a new bill number, so people can so this can be tracked, and it's all available online. You can go to malegislature.gov. You can plug in the bill number, and you can see. Sort of, you know, the date it was drafted, it's filed, it public hearing, when it was uh, reported out of committee, and then the new bill number, and you can, you can track it and so forth. So for a bill that gets changed a few times, it can, it can get quite... you got to be able to figure out <laughs> yeah. what the new number but, is. But it, is, it, it works pretty well, and the clerks, and they do a really good job so that it's all out there. It's all public. People ask me, like, you know, where do you get your information? I'm literally just looking on the public website, you know, and, and I see the same information that people see. Um but that's that's the current status. So that's that's where we're at um, the session right now is um, we every it's a two year cycle. So we have a two year legislative session and it, we uh, end our formal sessions usually in July of the second year. They used to go into the into the fall. But um, as a reform, they made that change. They weren't going to do that after the election. Are we into
1: July of the second year now.
2: Correct. So um, so formal sessions end fairly soon. The end of July thirty, July thirty first. So you know. So
1: what? Several days. I from mean, now. The, there's no financial part to this bill. It's not like we're asking the government to come up with a ton of money or anything. Yeah,
2: no, I don't think there is. I mean, I think you know that's sort of broadly viewed. You know, any kind of fiscal impact. Uh, either right. I don't, in this case, I'm not aware of one. Um, there could be something in, in, unintended, perhaps. But uh, but typically, any kind of bill that has you know, that, that's not, um, that has any, you know, kind of significance to it would go to the healthcare finance committee just as a sort of a step in the process to, to make sure that it doesn't, even if, you know, we don't, we presume that it doesn't. So, um, so, you know, it can be frustrating, I think, you know, because it's, it's hard to get legislate, even a good idea, you know, it's hard to get it passed. There's a lot of steps in the process. And I think, you know, um, sort of built that way. And occasionally, you know, it gets frustrating, um, even when you have a really good idea and you want to get it done. But if you stick to it, you know, I, I think you can persevere. And, I, you know, I know Well, what
1: happens if it doesn't come out of this committee by the end of July.
2: So uh, the session formally ends uh, in December at the at the end of the year. And so there's still bills that, that are um, sort of a of a non, uh Controversial nature, which would include your bill here, can still be passed all the way through in the fall, up until the end of the session, which technically doesn't technically again until the new session is sworn in, which is usually January first of of the next of the new year. So, uh, technically, any anything up until that time, literally that morning, uh, it could <laughs> it could could be finalized. So, so um,
1: is there any way like um, I have a lot of listeners, followers. Yes. Can they make phone calls?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, um, the bill is before the healthcare finance committee and you can look online or you can put it out there and you know, you can see the members of the committee and the chairs of the committee and their email addresses and their office numbers and so forth. And, you know, people do that all the time. I mean, I have, this isn't before my committee, but I have bill, well, actually most of our bills have now been reported out, but during earlier in the year, when we had a lot of bills before our committee. You know, we would get a lot of people reaching out. Um, we had a we had one bill, a wage theft bill, that was a really high-profile bill that a lot of people were interested in, and we got a lot of people, you know, calling, emailing, coming in person. You, you know, you name it. Um, and 99.9% of them, you know, were helpful and respectful, and um, you know, we appreciate it, and it's helpful to hear, you know, what people are concerned about.
1: So out of these 5,000 bills that get put in a year, every every two years. Yes. Um, how many of them make it?
2: Uh, only a small percentage. But typically, what happens though, um, Tony, is that when we do larger bills and things get, you know, combined into omnibus bills. Uh, for instance, um, we just did a big mental health bill, okay, uh, and it had, you know, different pieces of different bills, you know, put together. We're, today, we're doing uh, a big um, climate bill. It has a lot of uh, offshore wind, some electric vehicle uh, legislation. Um, so a lot of things that people have been working on individually will get put together and, uh, and packaged as a, as a larger bill. That often happens. Uh, not always. Um, it really depends. Um, but, um, you know, it's a small percentage overall. And then there's a lot of bills that... Um, like I just passed a bill this past week, you know, it was a bridge naming in Duxbury, so you know, it's it's not a, um, <laughs> it's not a, you know, it's not a, a super complex piece of legislation, uh, but it still has to be filed as a bill and still had to go through all the steps that I explained a little while ago. Um, but that um, that was done. So you know, probably fewer than ten percent of the bills actually get passed in a given term. I would say probably probably even lower than that. Wow, well,
1: I don't like the odds.
2: Uh, well, you know, but that's again, keep in mind, uh, you know, you might have one bill and that had, you know, 20 bills that that it included. So um, I think, um, you know, it pays to be an advocate and it pays to, to do what you're doing, which is to really um, share your stories, you know, contact the folks in charge and, and, and be a good advocate. I think, you know, I know that was one of the things that you mentioned, talked about offline is just, you know, being an advocate. I think, you know. I, you know, I've I've listened to lots of testimony over over the years, but I, you know, the stories that you hear from people are what you remember, the stories, and I think that's you know really helpful. And you talk, you know, talking about, I'm sure it's painful for you, and, and, and uh, but again, I applaud you for talking about that. And I think you know that really does have an impact on folks. And I know I I, I was just with uh, Representative Fiola yesterday, and we, we chatted about this briefly, and uh, you know she's a, she's, um, you know, she appreciates everything you're doing, and I know she's she's a great person to be. great ally that's good
1: she's I hope I wanted you to say she's relentless she's relentless too I want that to be the
2: (laughs) the dog that bites your leg and never lets go you know
1: (laughs) you know yes Um,
2: now, and, and, you know, a little bit off topic, Tony, but you know, we, did, you know, there, I want to. Uh, there's been some positive steps that have been taken in recent years on the opiate issue uh, in, in a different a number of different fronts. I mean, we, I remember, you know, for instance, we we did pass legislation to limit first-time prescriptions, you know, the quantity. Um, to that, that was an important step, limiting, you know, having the prescription monitoring program so that. You know, we have some accountability for doctors. And, you know, we know the vast majority of doctors are doing the right thing. But, you know, there are a small number that that were over-prescribing. And so monitoring that, uh, the, the prescription monitoring program, is a, is a useful and important tool. Because, as you know, you know, things that you can measure, you can change. And if you can't measure it, it's very challenging to do that. Um, so, you know, that was a step that was taken. Um, you know, we've done some, some important things on the opiate issue. But clearly, you know, there's, there's still more work to be done.
1: Well, speaking about that, there's most recently there was like a 11, I think it was only $11 million, and I say only because some of the other cases are much bigger, that the state of Massachusetts got for, I don't, for, from either Johnson & Johnson, one of the pharmaceutical companies. And I want to know uh, who's in charge with where that money goes. So let's say they get the money from Purdue Pharma and it's $40 million. Who Who's going to get that?
2: Yeah, so so there there was a, some settlement. So Attorney General, uh, who's done a great job of you know being on the forefront of you know bringing litigation, uh, the Sackler family, you know some of the other pharmaceutical companies, and I believe so that this is a date I have more than five hundred and twenty-five million dollars actually is coming into the state from all these. That's right. When you total the, them all up, when you total it up, yeah, yeah so, so a significant uh, amount of money. That's just obviously Massachusetts. You know, every every state has um, uh, gotten a share of that, and so. That money uh, of that 525 million, about 210 million of that is going to be distributed back to cities and towns, uh, and that's based on a formula that I believe has to do with you know how impacted that community was with the substance abuse crisis, right. uh, and, and, and it's and quite a you know. Does each Pembroke, for instance, which I represent, is going to get about 710 thousand dollars over the next so do they, 18 years?
1: do they? Do Do they have to? Um, use that money, dire- you know, towards recovery of people that may live in the town, or do they just put it in the budget and they say, well, we had to do 25 ambulance runs because of overdoses, and we get to keep the money and put it back into the
2: budget? No, so the the, the funds do need to be used to mitigate the impacts of the opiate epi- opiate epidemic, and what what's happening. So there's going to be um, sort of a, an advisory committee that's going to have. Um, you know, parameters about how the money can be spent. In fact, uh, I think just this week, the attorney general hosted a a, a Zoom for cities and towns to learn more about that process and, you know, what's involved, Uh, because we want, you know, sort of balance the flexibility to the towns to do what's best, because they know best, like in their own community, like, you know, in Marshfield or, or throughout the South Shore in Quincy, how to spend it, but also have guardrails so that the money is spent in a way that reflects the broader, you know, purpose and doesn't get spent on things that you know like like bridges you just and yeah fire correct. trucks and well yeah those are important stuff. things but that's not that's not the but for this, the, money. this money is for right so there's this advisory council and again it's going to be made up of some key stakeholders including folks from municipal government that will kind of put some parameters out about that uh, because this is you know this is i believe it's 18 years you know there's going to be funds flowing to our cities and towns from this you know of this 210 million dollars um, so that, you oh, it's, know, it's oh,
1: and that's the deal. I, I remember that they said it's spreading out over 18 years, which, which I think is um, a joke because they're still making money. So they're going to pay all these towns, cities with monies that they're going to make still abusing people with selling more drugs. I mean, that part is part of the bankruptcy that I'm not. I don't I'm not keen on that plan.
2: Yeah, well, yeah, they should be giving it right
1: now. (laughs) Yeah, right now, because eighteen years from now they can just be paying the people with all the money that they've. I know the sacklers have taken out like thirteen or fourteen billion dollars, and under current rates, they can be making a billion dollars or two a year, just you know, just investing the money. So I, you know, again, that's I know that's on the federal level that that's being decided and everything.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I, I understood, and yeah, I d- don't disagree. Um, you know, I think, you know, it, it is a significant amount of money, though. It's going to flow into the, the, to the Commonwealth to, to help support right. and augment what we're already, you know, we were already dedicating more resources to, to substance abuse, uh, substance misuse uh, treatment services, and, and downstream prevention, uh, and this will certainly help that. And I think, so I think it's, you know, it is, it is, it is um, you know, welcome funding, but certainly, you know, I agree, it's not, you know, for some of these companies, it's... Well. It's just you a go down methadone. I
1: went down methadone mile last week, and I counted 555 people on the sidewalk. You know, yeah. a quick overview yeah. because people were moving and going. Yeah. I mean, those people need to have. They're all addicted. I saw I saw two people with needles in their arms right there on the sidewalk. That's
2: so sad. These
1: people are really heavily addicted, and three quarters of them will probably die in the next 16 months or 10 months. But um, they need to be in rehab somewhere where they can't stop but because they can't control themselves because the drug is controlling them so they they just this their only alternative but they need to be put someplace where they don't get dope sick and dope sick is what happens when you go on when you're in withdrawal without any medical or anything with it and we, we had a guest on four weeks ago who talked about you know putting people into treatment and and making sure they don't have to pay for it but treatment, where they have, suboxone and bupropamine and and having having it so that they're the real treatment, not spin dry as they call it, and put them mm-hmm. back out on the street tomorrow, you know. And yeah. going back to what we were talking about earlier, about way back when we said this kid was sectioned and he died when he got out, like the sheriffs in this county and in Norfolk County, <clears throat> Sheriff McDermott. I mean, he's got a program. That's better, as far as I can see, where they put people, you know, they they get them into uh, rehab in the prison. But then when they let them out, they just don't let them out. They they found out where they're going. They put them in a halfway house. They follow up with them. And they seem to really track them. So they're they're not back as uh, customers in the prison three months from now. Because what are they going to do if they have no job and no money? They're going to go right back to what they were doing before. And, you know, somebody, the powers to be have got to say, this is a bad thing. It's not working, you know, so.
2: Yeah, no, the Plymouth County, that's been a model really for, you know, and I know that they've been recognized for that and deservedly so for for that, you know, because that kind of follow-up becomes so important. Um, And what what I wanted to mention just for listeners who may not be, one of the things that that was done um, that I think is important to note is that we took action to remove the insurance company pre-authorization requirement because you know the last thing you want to do is once you once you make that decision that you you want to get help which, you know, I'm sure is probably a pretty hard decision to make. But once you make that decision, the last thing you want to get is that some kind of bureaucratic, you know, notification oh, yeah. from your insurance company. Oh, well, I'm sorry, you don't qualify. You know, you need to fill out this paperwork. So we remove that. It says you can get automatically get, you know, at least a week of substance abuse treatment services before any kind of paperwork requirement comes in. So you have time to get the treatment, get the help, and then you can, you know, go through that process. So that was, you know, I think an important step that was made, you know. So, again, progress, steps, not not, you know, not sol- not a solution, but yeah, I think it's important to, to recognize you know, I, that sort of progress that is being made. But I, um, you're absolutely I, I, right.
1: I would just, I would think though, if you have, you know, like during COVID, mm-hmm. the news stations in Boston, at between and every time they had the news, they start off with, "And here are the COVID numbers for today." Yeah, you know, and sixty-one people died. or So many people died. Well, three hundred people die every day of an overdose. Or some people like to call fentanyl poisoning or something poisoning, you know. Mm-hmm. But because uh, overdose creates, the stigma keeps going with it like it was their choice to overdose or like somebody committed suicide with sleeping pills. Oh, it's their choice. It's really not their choice. There's something wrong. They're in a state of depression or something's happening. But um, um, why don't the why you know, the stigma we have is that people, they just don't, <laughs> recognize like i think massachusetts had 2200 deaths last year or somewhere in that area and and um how many is that a day you know so what are we losing an an average of of eight a day in massachusetts seven a day but there's nobody tracking that sort of thing you know it's like um
2: no, you're right. You know, I mean, you, you, the COVID. You know, you, you hear the daily, daily uh, count, and, and it certainly has an impact. And I think you know we well, have to right. not to lose sight of what, you know, the opiate uh, crisis. You know, didn't go away.
1: Yeah, I mean, if somebody, if they did it on a national level, can you imagine? Yeah. If every night, uh, uh, this is O'Donnell started off her evening news, and and 280 people died today of a of a substance abuse overdose. You know, you know, and it's constantly out there. Yep. You know, then. People may act to get a little bit more done.
2: Oh, yeah, no. I mean, listen, we had one fatality, sadly, because of a shark, and we, we've taken Oh, like, everybody all these, knows about it. All these actions, so, you know. Uh, yeah, because so, it's on
1: some big dramatic thing, you right, know. Oh, one right. died, you know. <laughs> it's like, you know. Well, I, I mean,
2: you know, every death, you know, that, 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 that was a right. tragedy. But, um, if,
1: I, I want to change the subject okay. for a second. Um, Lyme disease. Lyme disease. Yeah. Massachusetts is one of the peak states in the country for the most Lyme disease cases. Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, just, you know. We used to have a, there used to actually be a vaccine for Lyme disease, and they stopped making it. I'm sure, I don't know if you're even aware of that. But
2: So I believe uh, UMass has uh, working on... Uh, um Uh, A shot that um, they're doing human trials soon. I don't know if it's I don't believe it's um, commercially available yet but I know it's something that's
1: It was like 10 years uh, or 15 years ago but back in those days hardly anybody even knew when they had Lyme disease but it's one of the most undetected diseases out there and um, I'm personally my wife has got Lyme 7 years ago and is still having the after effects of Lyme disease. Lyme disease drags on, you know, like they talk about yeah, uh, right. COVID, long-haul Long COVID. COVID right. Well, Lyme, long-haul Lyme disease, people, is much worse than from what I've been able to observe in different places. And uh, when my wife was in the hospital, the entire floor at Tufts on the, in the in the north wing in the seventh floor, everybody in there had Lyme disease. And we're talking 50 to 100 people. And the the, the media, everybody, they never even discuss it. Nobody ever says, you know, be, take care of yourself, you know. I'm thinking, of why doesn't the state come up with some money and do some advertising to, to make people more aware of the dangers of Lyme disease? And even even doctors, some people come in, they say, oh, I'm feeling terrible, I've got a low energy level, this and that. They test them for everything but. I know people that were tested for, for multiple sclerosis or MS, you know, and the whole thing. And, and everybody thought they had this, or this, or this, but they never tested them for Lyme disease. Is there a, is there a reason why they don't check for that right away?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, and I know, it, in here, in, 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 in the southeastern part of Massachusetts, Lyme disease is even more, uh, more prevalent just because of the, you know. The, oh,
1: Nantucket the, and Martha's Vineyard, it's unbelievable. Everybody has doxycycline in their yeah. medicine cabinet because they get it so frequently.
2: Yeah, no, I know, and I, I, I know we, we've, in Massachusetts, you know, we've taken the steps, um, I, I, I think it was four or five years ago, maybe it was a little bit longer, to uh, ensure that insurance covers would cover this. And, you know, I think there was a little bit of a debate or maybe a division in the medical community in the past about long-term Lyme. Uh, and um, They didn't
1: exist. They didn't believe
2: it. They yeah, said, no, no there's I, no such thing. Right. Um, I've
1: heard that a thousand times. There's no such thing as long-term Lyme. You know, it's like, that's like crazy.
2: No, I, I trust me. I've had constituents who who've, who've who who i have spoken to, uh, you know, who who have that those very symptoms, and it can be very debilitating. You know, I have a, a colleague um, who uh, who in the house who who had Lyme disease, and so it's certainly it's it does it's certainly something that has a you know in, it hits home. So yeah, I, I mean, I
1: you said University of Dartmouth, Massachusetts, uh, so yeah, UMass, UMass, UMass Medical School. Uh, yeah. So does that mean the no, no pharmaceutical company is going to go into it or? How so I believe did, it's Mass
2: Biologics has a, a um, and again I, I am not a, I'm the last person to be a doctor and to understand yeah. some of these things, but um, they are doing um, human monoclonal antibody um, is in is in human trials or human trials are expected soon. So that that is one um, thing, and then there is a, there is a, a VLA fifteen is a is a Lyme disease vaccine that's in development as well. So. Um, uh, I think you know. Certainly, it's not quite there yet. It sounds like, but but I, I would agree. It's it's you know, certainly in my in my district. Terrible. It's a huge issue.
3: Absolutely.
2: Yeah. Huge
1: I mean, issue. I, yeah. I know three people in Duxbury that have been. I should say I know of
2: three people in Duxbury who have been
1: bedridden for years because I of Lyme disease. Yep. You know, and they just lost their ability to move.
2: And I, you know, we I'll give a shout out to to um, to Plymouth County. Um, they have you know taken a number of steps uh, to help try to address that, you know, through education, but also, you know, they hired, uh, I believe it's an entomologist, um, to help, you know, a bug expert, you know, tick expert to do, um, you know, Lyme disease workshops and try to, because we know, you know, part of it is, is hitting the education side of things and just, you know, being smart about when you're out in certain areas that are, you know, prevalent for Lyme diseases to, you know, cover up or have spray or take appropriate steps and then check when you're done. Um, and so they hired an individual to help with that. And, you know, I think, Certainly in Southeastern Mass, you know, we're sort of in the the hotbed, unfortunately, for that. Well,
1: you know, if one person gets triple E, you know, uh, equine encephalitis there, oh, it's on the news everywhere. And there's a lot less happening with that than there is happening with Lyme disease. Okay. Now, so Joshua has just had to leave the room because he now has to vote. That's
0: an interesting process right there.
1: Yes, we can have a commercial break here, Ben.
0: Sure, let's do it. We'll be right back on 1510 WMEX with Courage to Hope. This Saturday is the third annual Veterans Music Festival Benefits and Career Expo. Veterans, first responders, and their families are invited to join in a fun-filled day with live music, free food, and games for the kids, along with health and wellness info and resources, veteran benefits, employment information, and a job fair. This year also includes a Parkinson's pavilion open to everyone. The festival is this Saturday from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. at Pageant Field in Quincy. Brought to you by the Veterans Voice Network and the City of Quincy. Learn more at veteransvoicenetwork.org. Do you need to feed a lot of people fast? Call Angelina's Embraintree, the home of the jumbo. Here's a fun fact. Did you know that Angelina's has a full-service ice cream bar? Spring is heating up, and Angelina's has countless flavors for cones, fraps, quarts, pints, and more. Feed your family tonight with Angelina's, and you'll receive $5 back for every $25 purchase. Not to mention, Angelina's also delivers, ensuring that you can enjoy their great food from the comfort of your own home. Angelina's in Braintree, 419 Elm Street. Call 781-843-7827.
1: Tony LaGreca here. I want to tell you about a special event coming this October. Finding Hope in Grief is a support conference scheduled to take place on October 22nd and 23rd at the Doubletree Hilton in Westboro, Mass. The conference is for anyone who lives or works in Massachusetts and is bereaved by the death of a loved one from substance use. If you are interested in attending the conference and sharing a weekend of hope, healing fellowship, and remembrance, sadod.org. The conference is sponsored by the Department of Public Health and the Bureau of Substance Addiction Services, also supported by the Adcare Educational Institute. Again, that's S-A-D-O-D to register and sign up early.
3: Other banks go out of their way to make redeeming credit card rewards needlessly complicated, like how they require minimums or force you to use your rewards before reaching some arbitrary expiration date. But Discover isn't like that. With Discover, you can redeem your rewards for cash in any amount, at any time. So you'll never have to jump through hoops. Unless you're like a trapezist, then, by all means, go right ahead. Learn more at discover.com slash redeem rewards. Terms apply.
0: Welcome back to Courage to Hope on 1510 WMEX. Back to your host, Tony LaGreca.
1: Thank you, Ben. Yes, when we have uh, Josh Cutler has just voted on what he needed to vote on, and now he's back in the room with us. And he wants to tell us about this new disability hiring tax credit, and I've quickly reviewed it. (laughs) And it looks like we're going to get, if I'm an employer, which I am, Yes, um, I can get a four thousand dollar employer tax credit. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, I know.
2: Thanks, Tony, for for mentioning that. Um, it's it's a it's a good deal uh, and it's a good policy. So uh, this is something that we uh, were able to get in the budget last year. Uh, I'm grateful to my colleagues for supporting this, and uh, it's just recently been enacted. They've you know put out the regulations and so forth, uh, and so it's now in effect. And so what it is essentially is that if you uh, hire an individual with a disability, and there's a you know there's a process. It's a lot of
1: disabilities, though. Is that Uh,
2: so? This is uh, someone who's qualified through the Mass Rehabilitation Commission, what we call as MRC, and um, so if you're an employer, you can hire an individual with a disability, and you get uh, a one-time tax credit of a refundable tax credit of four thousand dollars, up to four thousand dollars depending on the salary, and then an annual tax credit as well of two thousand dollars. So it's it's an every year tax credit as long as that person is, is is employed so it's a pretty generous tax credit and again it's a refundable tax credit so you could actually get that money you know back depending on on your tax okay. status uh, as an employer um, and you know the idea is we want to you know there's well especially if you we step sort of step back and look at what's happening in our economy you know the biggest gripe that you hear from employers is I can't find help right everybody's yeah, that's a big bro everybody's trying to hire folks and you know we're sort of at a labor shortage and you know part of that is just demographics because our our baby boom generation is, is aging into retirement, and so some folks are not re-entering the workforce, and so there's fewer people in the workforce than there were you know, five or 10 years ago. And so what do we do about that? Well, you know, we have to look for pools of labor in you know, maybe non-traditional ways, or be more creative, or be more open-minded. And so one of those things is, is trying to take advantage of people with disabilities who might have been you know, sadly shut out of the job market, or you know, didn't get the opportunities that others had, and, uh, but are still just as capable. And so this is one sort of incentive to try to remove some of those barriers is to give employers tax credit to kind of look beyond someone's disability and look at the person and see, you know, the skills and talents that they bring. And so um, this is a new tax credit I'm really proud of because it was something that, uh, that I really worked on quite a bit. And um, you'll probably hear more about it. So your listeners are getting a kind of a, a preview of this, which is good. So, yeah,
1: uh, I, so. am, I know somebody who has cerebral palsy and they have a, they have a job in a school system so does that mean this even though they're already working can this can the school system start claiming that if this person's
2: Yep, so the the, very the one-time dis- higher credit would not apply but the annual $2000 correct yeah be. and so and, and you know there's it, it, so the, the reason why it takes some time to between when it was passed and the actual rollout is cuz the, the Department of Revenue has to do their you know their their um, issue the regulations and have a public hearing and all that so forth uh, but that process has has concluded and so now when people are filling out their uh, tax returns for you know, the, the 2002 tax year, you know, presumably early next yeah. year, they'll be able to do that. And, and there'll be some paperwork from from the Department of Revenue about that. So that's a new tax credit for disability hiring uh, that's now uh, going into effect. The, the final regs were just issued. So again, I don't even think the I don't think the governor and his team have really announced it yet. Um, so we're your listeners getting a, an advanced uh, preview of that, uh, but it's something it's that- good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you yeah, for man. that, Ben. Um, that uh, That is, is now in effect. And so I would encourage people, you know, this is for employers. Um, there's other tax credits for individuals, but this is for employers. We want to make sure that, you know, um, the people with disabilities are, have every opportunity to, to show their talents.
1: That's great. Um, yeah. Now that um, we're running, running close to the time limit, ah, uh, let's sorry. talk about the uh, Cutler receives Thomas Menino Award for Public uh-huh. Service. So let's talk about something positive here the you were honored and recognized for the Disability Policy Consortium with the Thomas Menino Award for Public Service. So tell us about that. Yeah, well, actually, it's a good segue. Congratulations, se- too.
2: Yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> it's a good segue because um, the Health Policy Consortium does a lot of work on disability issues, um, and, uh, you know, that was one of the things that uh, that I was really involved with them uh, working on was, was yeah. the disability tax credit. We had a, um, a, a task force last term on disability hiring practices in the Commonwealth and trying to find ways to remove barriers to ensure that people with disabilities you know, can fully participate in the workforce. And so it was something I helped to lead and I uh, was really proud of the work that we did. We had a great team and uh, a number of my colleagues in the South Shore, Democrat, Republican, you know, were very much involved in that. And um, so that was a nice little recognition. Yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty cool. And the fact that it was named after Thomas Menino uh, who is, yeah. was very darn cool. So I um, appreciate that. Yeah.
1: Is this, <laughs> is, this some, is this an award that comes out once a year?
2: That's an award that comes out once a year. And so I was the recipient um, this past year. So, so,
1: so yeah. another question on going back to the disability tax credit is there anything for a tax credit for, for um, people who hire people who've been incarcerated?
2: Um, I don't know of a tax credit, but I can tell you one thing we're trying to do is uh, we've uh, increased funding in the budget for redevelopment programs. In other words, um, for programs to help people who are coming out of a period of incarceration to re-enter the workforce. Uh, in fact, uh, Massasoit College in Brockton has a great program that um, that is partially funded through the state that teaches uh, ex-inmates um, diesel mechanic skills. Because apparently diesel mechanic skills are very much in demand and they're good paying jobs. And um, so, teaching folks uh, who are coming out of a period of incarceration those kind of skills really allows them to be, you know, A, to fill a need that the economy needs, but also a way for them to, you know, be earning a good living. Uh, And certainly, I think it helps with recidivism as well. So, um, that is something that we've definitely, in recent years, have really tried to emphasize. And that's actually one of the line items that comes under my sort of jurisdiction as a labor and workforce chair. And so, we've been successful in the budget. I'm grateful to the speaker and to, to chair uh Michaelwitz for supporting that uh, of increasing that line item the last few years and 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 um, you know I think that'll do some do a lot of good. And it gets back to the point we we're talking about. We need to find good workers and you know that means being creative about where they come from. And that means people right. who you know who might have done some time. Well, one last quick thing. Yeah. And we're almost was... out of time, sorry. I know, it's, it's okay. <laughs> we're you're,
1: you're going to get you're going to get relieved here. <laughs> um, the um, but we're going to have to make this a regular event. <laughs> get you in here every four or five months or something. All right. Sounds good. Um the the gun law that the Supreme Court did in Texas I mean in, in New York State. Yes. Well now people in New York or anywhere in the country they have a right to to open carry from the way it sounds to me. Now now in Massachusetts we have this tough one of the best gun laws in the country, you know, and I think we have and it shows by what's happened in our state compared to what's happening in Texas and Florida, and other places. Um, do we have to do any emergency legislation to offset that?
2: So we do. In fact, we, we, we did part of it earlier today. Um, the, the Supreme Court, according to, you know, again, the, the experts that have looked at this from a state point of view, tell us that any of the subjective metrics that were in the Massachusetts law, because we had a law that said if you were the police chief, you know, there were subjective standards you could apply to, to deny uh, an LTC. If, uh, you know, for a particular reason, if you had some knowledge about the individual. And so we will, we we do have to make some changes to our law to accommodate that new Supreme Court decision. In fact, we made some of them in the House today. Um, it's a little bit of a tricky timing because the Supreme Court decision was fairly recent. We have some, oh, I know, some but deadlines I coming up very quickly. And so it, it, I think. This is sort of part one of that, and I think, um, in fact, the speaker talked about this today. That next term we'll probably have a take a deeper dive on this issue, as as you know, we have the, kind of the the some time to to figure it out. But most immediately, we are taking action here in Massachusetts to make sure we're in compliance and make sure you know we, we have strong gun safety laws and make sure that they they continue to be.
1: the, the idea of uh, seeing somebody in the local bank standing behind me with a gun in the side of his waist. And he's just making a deposit, or maybe he's trying to make a big withdrawal. How do you know? How can you tell? I mean, as a citizen of Massachusetts, I I feel much safer here than I do in Texas, and and I would never even move there for that purpose, reason. You know, I just, but um, I think that it would be nice, I think a lot of people would agree with me, they don't want to see open carry.
2: Oh, I think, you know, Massachusetts historically has very strong gun laws, and, you know, I think um, appropriately so, and I think, you know, we'll continue to have those, and, you know, I I I, feel, I think that's. I don't think people should worry that that's going to happen. Uh, we have to respond to the Supreme Court decision. You know, respect that, but we can still, some crafts. You know, continue to, to be uh, take a strong position here. Okay.
1: So one last thing. Yes. And I let you go. The 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 bill, H forty eight fourteen is in what, is in what committee now, Ways and Means. Or uh,
2: so it's in healthcare financing.
1: Healthcare financing. Yes. So, if a listener in Lynn is it wants to call their local rep and mm-hmm. tell them that they want this approved, yes, do they do they do they see if if what if their rep is not in healthcare financing? So do, do they, they, they have t-
2: they have different choices. They can contact their own state representative and ask them to advocate for it. Uh, they okay. can also reach out directly to the committee.
1: Okay, so remember that everybody at H. <laughs> H4814. We want this to pass in Massachusetts. It's passed in 19 other states, and we want Massachusetts to be number 20. And this bill has got to pass because it's going to save lives and it's not going to cost anybody any money. It's going to save lives and, and not just the lives of the people. Let me tell you, when a, when a parent has a child with that's got an opioid addiction problem, it's a, it's a real long chase. It's not something that just happens. You know, it goes on for years, and it destroys the whole family, not just that one person, you know. So this is what we need. We need to get this bill passed. And I want to thank Joshua Cutler. And he says he wants to stay as a rep. He's not going to be our governor someday.
2: No chance. No, no. I like my job. Don't cause me trouble, Tony. We've had a good session here. Let's end
1: on a good note. (laughs) Yes. We really appreciate you being here and taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you. In this hot day sitting in a tie, you know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know so and uh, coming down from the state house while well, the state house is still in session and so we really appreciate you getting in here and coming here and being on time My pleasure. thank you very much this is the courage to hope and we'll be on next week if you're hearing this on, on Thursday night and you have some friends that you know would like to hear it uh, tell them that it's going to repeat on Monday night at 6 o'clock Repeat on Monday night at 6 o'clock. If they're out in western Massachusetts, just tell them to go to wmexboston.com, listen live online. That's all you have to do. It's very simple.
0: WMEX Quincy, Boston. Streaming at wmexboston.com. And on your smart speaker, just say, play WMEX. The greatest hits of all time are back. This is the all-new WMEX. WMEX
4: Boston. President Biden is quarantining after testing positive for COVID-19. CBS's Steve Dorsey at the White House. White House
0: COVID-19 response coordinator Dr. Ashish Jha told reporters he's optimistic about the president's recovery. He sounded great. I asked him, you know, Mr. President, how are you feeling? He said, I'm feeling fine. The president complained about a runny nose, fatigue, and a dry cough. He doesn't have a fever. Mr. Biden is vaccinated and double boosted. He's also now taking the antiviral drug Paxlovid. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says he continues to work while isolating.
4: The president will continue to work from the residence.
0: Steve Dorsey, CBS News, the White House.
4: And in a video message, Mr. Biden says he is doing well. The January 6th House Committee returns to prime time tonight. CBS's Scott McFarlane reports. The
0: panel says it's focusing on what it characterizes as Trump's dereliction of duty, what he did and what he didn't do during the three hours in which rioters were ransacking the Capitol. Pete Aguilar of California is a member of the committee. There's still more of the story to tell. What was the president's response? Two former Trump White House staffers will be witnesses. Matt Pottinger, Deputy National Security Advisor. Sarah Matthews, Deputy White House Press Secretary. And we expect outtakes of a January 7th recorded speech from Trump who'd been urged to denounce the violence. Scott McFarland, CBS News, Capitol Hill.
4: The Supreme Court won't just yet let the Biden administration reinstate limits on immigration and customs enforcement arrests. Under the policy, deportation agents would be allowed to prioritize the deportation of people in the country illegally who pose the greatest public safety risk. The high court has decided to hear the merits of the challenge, setting up oral arguments on the U.S. versus Texas case during its December session. Heat advisories are posted across the lower Midwest, the deep South, and much of the East Coast. In Texas,
1: you're over 100 degrees constantly every
4: day, so it is hotter than normal. Reporter Chris Fox in Austin. The
0: extreme heat has led to severe drought conditions statewide. Water restrictions have been enacted. Texans are also being asked to turn up their thermostats to preserve the state's power grid.
4: The National Weather Service says record-breaking heat is expected over the Northeast this weekend. On Wall Street today, stocks closed up. The Dow and the Nasdaq hit 162 points up. S&P 500 was up 39 points. Now this.
0: Presented by Rocket Mortgage. Whether you're looking to purchase a new home or refinance yours, Rocket Mortgage can help you get there. For home loan solutions that fit your life, Rocket can.
3: Good evening. Lots of heat and humidity fueling severe weather across much of Massachusetts. That diminishing, heading overnight into Friday morning in the Boston area and on the South Shore. Very warm and muggy in the low to mid-70s. We'll stay with sunshine Friday, and turning less humid, though very hot, in the low to mid-90s. Friday night, clear, warm, a low of 73. Saturday, the heat wave goes on, especially just away from the immediate coast, where a light sea breeze can develop. Good deal of sunshine, a high of 95, again closer to 80 at the beaches and on Cape Cod. Sunday, extremely hot, some sun will mix with clouds, becoming breezy and more humid. The high 97 feeling well over 100 degrees. The extended heat wave goes into early next week. For WATD, I'm meteorologist Rob Gilman.
0: Veterans Voice is a show that connects veterans and active members of the military to qualified guests who help you find.